Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Thousands of years ago, God the Father had a dream, a dream of making a paradise, paradise that was so beautiful that he named it Earth. And after creating all of his wonder and splendor and awe, he had to create someone to inhabit it. So he took the floor of this earth and he shaped it and he formed it. And he and the Godhead shaped what he would call man. And then he breathed into him the breath of life. And the moment he breathed into him, man became a living being. How many dads and moms do we have here? Come on, raise your hand. How many of you remember talking about having children? Raise your hand. How many of you, they were an accident? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Seen parents do that and ruin kids' Christmases, you know, like we planned you and you and you, but now you, you were an accident. I always want those kids to say, you know what, so are you. I was supposed to be born to the rich people in River Ranch. I don't know how I got stuck with you. (laughs) But here's the truth. When you're in love and when you think about children, you think about the joy. You think about holding them. You think about little John Wesley, my, my grandson, who, you know, they wear what you want them to wear. They, you know, yesterday, everyone, I was taking them around holding. People go, that's such a beautiful little girl. I go, it's a boy. <laughs> One day, he'll resent his mother for that and be in counseling for a while. But you never think about the heartbreak that can come. And you never think about the disappointment that can come. And you never think about that child standing up to you and going, no, I hate you. You only dream about the possibilities and the wonder and awe of loving them and lavishing them. You see, God created man for one simple reason, for the same reason parents who are good parents have children. You want someone to love and lavish You want someone to share your life with. So God created man with the same purpose in mind. But in order to have love, there's two wills that are involved, not just one. And as many of you know who've had your heart broken by someone that you love, when only one person is loving, it isn't wonderful. It's hurtful. It isn't pleasurable. It's pain. It's heartbreak. Every one of us who've ever lived very long understands that. God's dream was now destroyed. Man began to hate and fight and kill. And not only despise one another, he even began to despise the God that created him to love him and to lavish him and to place him in a paradise and create birds and streams and sky and mountains and snow and and all of God's wonder that he created for man. So God said, I'm going to start over. I'm going to create a new Adam. And so he flooded the earth and began with a man and his family named Noah. In Genesis 6, 7, God said, I will destroy the man who I've made from the earth. God's heart was broken by what his creation had done to him, to themselves, and to others. What would it take to bring man back to God? 
What would it take to take this creature that was only created to be loved and lavished by God, who now was so far from the original design of which he was created? God would have to do something. He would have to send a savior. Someone to save man from his prone pattern of constantly choosing to do what's wrong. And can I tell you, let me just stop a minute. You don't need weed to do that. You don't need cocaine to do that. You don't need alcohol to do that. As a matter of fact, I've done worse things to myself than anyone has ever done to me. Can anybody identify with that? As a matter of fact, Many people are in absolute isolation right now with a phone or with an iPad or with a computer and they're more depressed and they're more guilted and shamed. And literally, we are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world and we have the highest suicide rate in the world. Because when man becomes isolated from God, he also becomes isolated from one another. How would God change this? Someone said if our greatest need would have been information, he would have sent an educator. If our greatest need would have been technology, he would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, he would have sent an economist. But our greatest need was forgiveness and transformation to our original design. So God sent a savior. A savior. So if he was going to send a savior, how would he know who he was? When would he come? And how would he come to earth? These are all legitimate questions that should have legitimate answers. God wanted to send a Savior whose origin and identity could not be denied when he came. Some people foolishly think the reason that you're a Christian or I'm a Christian is because we just happen to be born into the right family in the right circumstances. But had you been born in another part of the world, you'd be Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or something else. But that's not the case. God wanted to send a Savior, and he wanted to make sure that we knew when he came, his origin and identity could only be that he was the Savior of mankind. And so in this book, between 700 years and 4,000 years before Jesus would ever be born in a manger in Bethlehem, there were 300 specific predictions that he had to fulfill. The Bible calls them prophecies. And they would govern when he would come, how he would come, who his mother would be, who his father would be, what family line. And let me give you out of these 300, I want to share these 300 with you. So we can be here till next Christmas. Let me just share a handful of them with you. Number one, that he would be born of the seed of a woman, of the seed of a woman. Now, I, I'm not a medical professional, although I've raised six children. I can tell you what most kids have wrong with them. How many of you, is there any medical professionals, nurses, anybody like that here? Nurse, are we have any doctors here? Okay. Dentist, that qualifies. We'll slip you in up under doctors. So, so I don't know a lot about medical stuff, but I have had six children, or my, my wife has. I was there. <laughs> Hold it. It was a part of the process. I mean, don't be hating on me, okay? So now, 
I do know this, though. When a child is conceived, where does the seed come from? It comes from the man. It comes from the man. And so the first prophecy that would have to be fulfilled for Jesus to be the Messiah of God and the Savior that came as a baby to save the whole world was he had to have a different beginning than every other human being in all of history. Here's what the scripture says. As God speaks to the snake after the fall in Genesis 3, 15, after he's deceived Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The only child that was ever born supernaturally and divinely and not from the seed of a man, but from the seed of God himself through a woman was the virgin Mary. The second thing that would distinguish him apart is that he would be the lineage of Shem. Now this is interesting because Noah, who God started over with, had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. So immediately God eliminates two-thirds of all of mankind that will yet come. Here's the third thing, that he would be a descendant of Abraham. That was in Genesis chapter 12. That was made almost 5,000 years ago. And by doing that, God eliminates every other family on earth. Listen to what he says in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what he's speaking to Abraham. Here's the fourth thing, that he would be of the lineage of Isaac. You see, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And by doing that, he eliminated half of all of Abraham's descendants. Listen to what he says in Genesis 17. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Here's the fifth thing that he would be of the lineage of Jacob. Now, many of you know Jacob later had an encounter with God after he was as an adult, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Listen to what the next one is. Number six, that he would be of the tribe of Judah. In doing that, he eliminates 11 twelves of all of Jacob's children to say he would come from Judah or the Jewish tribe. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Here's the seventh thing he said. He would be of the family of Jesse. Now, most of us aren't real familiar with Jesse. Jesse's son was a giant killer. What was his name? There were eight sons in Jesse's family. But out of them, God eliminates seven-eighths of them and says, he will come from the lineage of David. The lineage of David. So here's where we are so far. Seed of a woman, lineage of Shem, descendant of Abraham, line of Isaac, line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of Jesse, household of David. Isaiah 6, 9, many of you have this under Christmas cards. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of his increase, 
and of his government and his peace that will be no end and upon the throne of David over his kingdom in order to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Here's the ninth thing, that he would be crucified in his death. Now, here's what's interesting. That prophecy that was written in the book of Micah was written 800 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Romans. That he would be crucified. Here's the next one, number 10. That he would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Say that with me, Bethlehem. Do you know how big Bethlehem was? Biblical historian W.F. Albright says at the time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem had 300 people. Can you imagine God sending a savior to the world and him going, okay, let's start Lafayette. No, that's too big. Let's go to Delcom. No, no, that's too big. How about Henry? How about Duzon? Let's start there. Family of Jesse, household of David, crucified, born in the city of Bethlehem, that he would be betrayed by a friend. Here's number 12, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The coinage at the time that was written in Zechariah was gold. 13, that the silver that he was betrayed with would be used to buy a potter's field. And that's exactly what happened in Zechariah eleven thirteen, And then finally, the 14th one, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Psalms twenty two sixteen. for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus himself, when talking to his disciples, appeared, appealed to all of these prophecies about him. Listen to what he said in Luke 24, 44 to his disciples. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things would be fulfilled which were written about in the law and the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. All of these were predictions about me. So why did God go to all of this trouble? Let me give you a mathematical probability that'll blow your mind. How many of you did good in math? Raise your hand. Okay. Raise your hand if you did good. You made A's in math. Okay. Good. I hate you in a Jesus kind of a way. How many of you did terrible in math? Raise your hand. That's my people. That's my people. Okay. All I learned was addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And by the way, I'm 64. That's all I've ever needed. So here's a mathematical probability that will blow your mind. Let's not take the 300. Let's not even take the 14. What are the mathematical probabilities that you could predict about someone, not 5,000 years, that was in Genesis, but that you could predict 500 years before someone's birth, eight specific things about them that would come true? Where they would be born, what descendants they would have, okay, how they would live, how they would die, the people that would be involved in everything leading up to their death. Dr. Peter Stoner actually did the mathematical probabilities. He is a mathematician. And he said in order for eight specific prophecies to be fulfilled in one person, just 500 years, not 5,000, 
before time. Do you know what the mathematical probabilities are? Well, it's too many zeros, so let me give you a mental picture. Here it is. I am from Texas. That's where I was born and raised in Houston. How many of you knew that I was from Texas? And y'all know also why I left. All my exes. <laughs> but if you took the entire state of Texas, let me tell you how big Texas is. When you cross over the state line on I-10, and I've done this, you can drive for 24 hours straight to California. Joseph and Rochelle lived there. You can drive for 24 hours and still be in the state of Texas. And that's not with your mama as you're driving. But that's how big Texas is. If you took the entire state of Texas and you filled it up three feet high with half dollars. And you took one of the half dollars and you marked an X on it. And you randomly threw it in the middle of Texas. And then you took a Texas-sized cake mixer, because everything's big in Texas. And you stirred it up. And you took one man in a helicopter with a pilot. And you flew randomly over the state of Texas. And then you would just randomly say, stop. And then you land right in the middle of those half dollars. And then you take the passenger and you blindfold him. And then you let him out and reach down and pick up a half dollar. And the mathematical probabilities that he could pick up the half dollar the first time with an X on it, three feet high, all across the state of Texas are the same mathematical probabilities that one person could fulfill eight specific prophecies about their life 500 years before they come. Why? Because God wanted you to know he was sending a savior. All of this was to proclaim three truths that are eternally true. Number one, Jesus said, I came to save you. I came to save you. Now, you know, people make fun of that. When, when I came to South Louisiana, I found out things could get saved I didn't even know were savable. I got close to the Baudouin family. I led most of their children to the Lord. Michelle was about 13 years old. I was 19. There was nothing going on. But I would be there for Sunday, eating after church, and, and then they'd say this, hey, would you go save the dishes? Like, I'm from Texas. I'm going, save the dishes? These people are holy. I mean, where I'm from, people get saved. I didn't know dishes got saved. Instead of the actual translation, apparently, from French to English is put up, is save. So that's what it was, save the dishes. What did Jesus actually come to save us from? What did he come to save us from? Did he come to save us from drugs? Did he come to save us from opiates? Did he come to save us from porn? Did he come to save us from immorality? Did he come to save us from hate? Did he come to save us from bitterness? Did he come to He came to save you from you. I want to say again. I've done worse things to myself than anybody has ever done to me. Me left to myself, separated from the one that made me, that loved me because he just wanted to be with me. Have done worse things to myself than anyone. He came to save you from guilt. 
You can argue all you want, religion. You can argue theology all you want. Everyone has experienced guilt before. You're always reminded when you see a little kid who just learns to experience it for the first time. They're two or three years old and and you tell them, don't get any candy. And then all of a sudden you turn around to leave and they go, Of course, they're not smart enough to hide, right? Remember when you were a child, you thought if you closed your eyes because you couldn't see nobody, nobody could see you? And they start eating, and there's chocolate all over their face. You come around, you're walking in, and there's chocolate all over. Did you get any of that chocolate? And guilt. But when guilt grows up, it... It becomes shame. It becomes shame. Shame causes you to hide, not just from people that are harmful to you. Shame calls you to hide from people that are good to you and want to be good to you. Just like Adam and Eve began to hide in the garden, so so we do. We hide. We hide. We don't want anybody to know what we've really done or what we've experienced or what we've gone through. Jesus came to save us from guilt and from fear and from shame. All those three things, like two plus two equals four, guilt plus shame plus fear equal condemnation. That's that voice that says you're never good enough. So don't even try. Don't even try. But remember, God created man, and this dream began with God having one desire, simply to know you and to love you and to lavish you. Like every good daddy in this house that's had children. Here's the second thing that he wanted us to know. I'm for you. I'm for you. Look right here. God is for you. If you heard about another one, that's not the real one. We were building this building and I was standing right over here and we were looking at the structure. I would come and look at it every day and man who loaned a local furniture store that's no longer open pulled up beside me and he goes, hey pastor, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I come out here every day and I look at the building and see the progress. I said, how are you? He said, terrible. I said, what's wrong? He goes, he's against me. I said, well, what, what, what do you mean he's against you? He goes, him. I said, him who? He said, God, he's against me. I said, Why? He said, well, you know, I left my wife because I'd been having an affair and I was trying to decide whether I was going to live with this one or stay with that one and business has gone down and he's against me. I'm like, you moron, you're against you. Your loving father didn't all of a sudden become horrible because you became an idiot. You're against you. 
you're against you. I'm amazed when I talk to people who you sit there and you try to convince them of something. You go, well, what would you say if somebody came, walked up to you and told you they were married to a woman that loved them, they had a child with everything, but they were having with this woman right here and they were trying to make a difference. What would you look at them and say? Go, I tell them they were a fool. I go, okay, you're a fool. Thank you. Take your own advice. You don't need a pastor. Just listen to yourself. It's probably one of the scariest scriptures in the Bible that says when we stand before God on judgment day, he won't judge us, but our very words will judge us. Like, you know, every time you've looked at somebody doing something stupid and go, that's stupid. Why are they doing that? You're going to see that. And then you're going to see yourself doing that and go, that's, oh, you don't know. You didn't know it was wrong. God created you and me to fellowship with us, to love us and to enjoy us like every good parent. God is for you. I love you. Satan told Eve three lies that people still fall for today. Number one, God is selfish. God is selfish. Can I tell you this? It's taken me a long time in my Christian life, and I'm still growing, and I'm still learning. But every time a big decision has come and I've not surrendered my will to God to obey him and instead did what I wanted to do for the moment, I have almost a perfect track record of 50 years of being wrong. And every time I've trusted him and laid down my will and allowed him to guide me and direct me, 100% of the time, it's always worked out better and for my good. Look at me. God's not mad at you. You might be mad at you. Other people might be mad at you. But God is for you. He's for you. He's not selfish. The second lie that he told her is that disobedience does not have consequences. I can't tell you how many people I've sat across and said, this is what I'm going to do because I'm just not happy in this situation. And I've looked at them and I've said this, listen to me. You can make your choices, but you can't choose who you hurt after that. You, you can't unhurt people when you make costly decisions. Here's the third thing. That God doesn't want what's best for you. That God doesn't want what's best for you. Look right here. Remember when you were a teenager? Someone would say, what's going on? My parents, they just want to control my life and they're just telling me everything I got to do. And let me tell you something, one day I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to wear ripped jeans and I'm piercing everything in my body. I'm getting, my whole head is going to be a tattoo. I'm going to have more pins and things sticking up out of me than a pin cushion. And I'll show them... And all your parents wanted to do was love you and care for you. And have you live the best life you could possibly live. And then one day, see you so responsibly well that all they worked for for 80 or 90 years, they get to leave to you so that you can do better with it than they did. That's our father. I'm sorry for the false advertisement. One of my mentors said the task of the modern day church is to rescue Jesus from modern day Christianity. Maybe it's true. 
Maybe it's true, but he loves you with an everlasting love. He is for you. Say that with me. God is for me. Come on, say that. God is for me. Pastor, you don't know what I was doing last night. I don't care. He's still for you. Your disobedience doesn't change that he's amazing. Here's the third thing. I want to be with you. You see, that was the reason he created man. That was his dream from the very beginning. Like every mom and dad, that you would have children, that you would love them and lavish them, and y'all would both enjoy one another. That you'd grow all together. My kids are all here, so I got to confess something to you. I couldn't wait till they got out of the house. I'm like, honestly, they're here. They'll tell you. A couple of them I kicked out. But you know what? When they moved away and they started their lives, I tried to do everything I could to get them back. Like I call them, what would you like to eat tonight? You know, steak? Is this daddy? Is this chicken wing daddy on the phone? Yeah, if you want steak, you want ribeye, what about my mama cook crawfish at toupee, chicken fricasse? I mean, what, what, what do you want? Because the end result of true parenting that's done right is your children become your friends. Because that was the goal in the very beginning. To share your life. Listen to me. God created you to share his great life with you. And if you're not living a great life, not without adversity, not without difficulty, then you're not living the life that Jesus came to earth to give you. I want to be with you. His name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches its founder lives inside of you? You, You'll never find a Hindu that believes that their guru lives inside of them. You'll never find a Muslim that believes Muhammad is living inside of them. Christianity is the only belief system in the world that actually believes that when you surrender to its founder, he comes to live inside of you. That's how much he wants to be with you. Can I say what kids say sometimes because I have a bunch of them? Get you some of that. Get some of that. Jesus came. In such dramatic form, in a city as small as Henry or Dusan, to show you how desperate his father was to come into a relationship with you. God left heaven to be with you. God became a baby to be with you. God became a servant to be with you. God became sin to know what your guilt and your fear and your shame felt like. And when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt just like you and I do. He actually came naked because he knew how nakedness embarrassed us. And on the cross, when he said, Father, forgive me, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then one of the last things he said is, my God, my God, why have you? That moment, for the first time in all of known time, he was separated from his father so that he would know what you feel like. Isn't that good? 
and helpless and separated from the Father who only wants to love and lavish you. Muslims go to Mecca to be closer to God. I was just in Jerusalem. Jews go to Jerusalem, to the city of David, to feel closer to God. But Jesus came to us because he knew we couldn't do it on our own. He knew we couldn't do it on our own. Christianity began with an empty womb of a virgin and it was sealed with an empty tomb at the resurrection all for God to say one thing to you and me. I love you. I'm for you. I want to be close to you. I want to be close to you. Many of our friends walked up that know us well and said, oh, I know Miss Michelle's heart is so full. First time today, this afternoon, will be the first time all of our children are together in seven years. Is mama happy, mama? Listen, she's so happy. She's beaming. She's floating. She's floating. Do you know why? Because every good parent's greatest desire is just to be with their kids. God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. Would you pray with me, Father? Today, I thank you. I thank you for the powerful truth that is so overwhelming that God became a baby. He who needs nothing became utterly helpless. That God came into the world naked to identify with our guilt and our shame of our own nakedness. And that God in Christ came to save us. Today, Father, I pray that we get a new revelation of what that means. And I pray that for those who've not experienced it, that today becomes their moment as we celebrate for them to be transformed by you. You're looking for them today. You've come after them today because you love them and long to be with them. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important, single most important question of your life. You say, Pastor, why is it the single most important question of my life? Because Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why did he say that? Because every person born since Adam and Eve has been born spiritually dead. When they ate of that tree in the garden, they died spiritually. And every descendant since that day, including you and me, have been born spiritually dead. Billy Graham was born spiritually dead. Mother Teresa was born spiritually dead. And you and I were born spiritually dead. 
But Jesus came so that we could be reborn. To be reborn. Pastor, how can I do that? It's what I've always wanted. I've wanted a fresh start. I've wanted to know God. I've wanted to be close to him. It's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer. And he died for your sin, guilt, fear, and shame. He became condemned so you could no longer be condemned on the cross. Somebody will pay for your sin. Either he did or you will. And C, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. As you trust him completely. And the moment you do that, you become spiritually alive. Christ comes to live inside of you. You have a spiritual resurrection just as he was physically resurrected. So the moment I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, if you say, Pastor, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I may have been christened or baptized or even joined a church, but I've never prayed to be born again. Pastor, would you pray for me today? Today, I need to be born again. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. But if you hear you say, Pastor, would you pray for me today? I want to be born again. I want a new beginning. I want Christmas Day to be my first spiritual birthday. Then when I get to the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand real high, and I'm just going to pray for you. I'm, not going to, I'm the only one looking. I'm just going to pray for you right where you are for today to be the first day of your spiritual journey and resurrection. One, God brought you here. He did. Yeah, I know your grandmother, mother, or friend invited. It was not them. God did that. Two, the last 48 hours of your life have been God preparing you for this moment. He's been calling you. Those unmistakable coincidences that have come together That isn't a coincidence. That's God. And now's your moment to begin your spiritual journey. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. I'm going to pray for you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Anywhere else? Okay, you can put your hands down. Last 10 seconds. Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these 15, but I should have. My heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know God is talking to me. I don't know why I've waited so long. I want to know God. I want him to come live in me. I want to be close to him. I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. Raise it up high right now and wave it at me. I'm asking this last time for you. Yes. Wave it at me. Yes. Yes. All right. All right. Church, Let's pray out loud the prayer that we pray to be born again with all of those that raise their hand today to begin their spiritual journey of new spiritual life. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe it on the cross. You took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, 
I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my guide. And I am born again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Come on, give it up for all those who prayed that prayer this morning.